Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do you not, or do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him there Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And let's pray together. Oh, we pray, Lord, for your blessing on this reading of Holy Scripture. And for the things that will now be said, and 
asking that you would stir in our minds and our hearts. Help us to receive what you want us to receive. We thank you, Jesus, for teaching your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so, Lord, let this uh, message today be about your kingdom, by your power, and for your glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a lot of, there are a lot of things in this chapter. And you see how it wraps up Paul's second missionary trip in verse 22 as he lands at Caesarea and he went up. When they say up, they don't mean north in the Bible. Up is more of, I have to walk up a hill. So he went up, and that's most likely to Jerusalem. So from Caesarea, he goes and visits the church in Jerusalem, greets them, and then goes down, which would be north, to Antioch. You remember Antioch was a place where they were first called Christians. And so he spent some time there, verse 23. We don't know exactly how much time, uh, though scholars are pretty good at the dating of things. And then he left and he passed through. And what happens right there in verse 23 is he begins his what's called his third missionary journey. So many things to point out in this chapter. And I've been using maps and pictures and so forth of trying to help us along with this. While he is in Corinth, which is about 46 miles west of, of where he was in Athens, he really has a tough time, as you can see here. And verse 10 is really where the main thrust of this message comes from today. Him having this vision in the night by a vision, he hears from the Lord and the Lord tells him, do not be afraid. And a New American Standard puts in there any longer. Uh, but go on speaking and do not be silent for verse 10, I am with you. I am with you. No one will attack you. And that's, you see how that happens here. I mean, unfortunately, they still attack people. They, they attack Sosthenes in verse 17, but they don't attack Paul. So God has a special protection on Paul. He had been attacked, but God gives him this promise. Nobody's going to attack you to harm you for I have many people in this city. And this is why perhaps you've heard me say before, and I got it from somebody else, but God is doing more than you know. He has many people in this city. Do you remember he had to say to Jeremiah in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, when Jer- Jeremiah, when Elijah, sorry, says, only I am left. I'm the only one who's left. Elijah, why are you depressed? What are you doing hanging out in this cave? Well, only I'm left. Nobody really cares. And God says to them, have 7,000 people. So I've heard people say, when you feel like God's not doing anything, he's got 7,000 things that he's doing. God is doing something. God is in control. 
You see that in this chapter? God is in control. And nobody hands the Apostle Paul a book titled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, so he doesn't read a book, and he's got a lot of difficult things happening to him. And he might be asking God, where are you, and why is this happening to me? And the answer is, I'm right here with you, and the reason it's happening is because I'm with you. Jesus said it this way, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. That was in John 15, verse 18 and following. And he goes all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. I am with you. I am with you. Just a couple of weeks ago, the phone rang, and it was Nancy, who used to be at Genesis Center. And I could hear dishes in the background clanking. She was clanking some dishes and just doing dishes. But she said, uh, she said, Steve, I think the Lord just gave me a word for you. And um, I feel like I'm supposed to call you right now and tell you this. So I got out my little notebook because I want to write these sorts of things down, you know. And sometimes they can be lengthy and you, and you just want to go back and look at it. Or at least I do. And so I pulled out my little notebook. I said, okay, what is it? And I got my pen. What's the word? I had her on speakerphone. And she said, he is with you. He's with you. I said, okay. And I paused. and, And so she just, I think, felt like she needed to elaborate. She says, he'll never forsake you. Keep your eyes on him. Look straight ahead. He is with you. And she just, he is with you. Is there any better news? I mean, if God were to give you a word or a vision, is there anything better that he could give, could say to you? He is with you. Paul doesn't get a book written by a rabbi. That book I just mentioned comes across and basically says, well, here's why bad things happen to good people, because God really can't do anything about it, because God's really not in control, and can you just love God anyway? I can love people who aren't in control. I just can't worship them. I'm just telling you there's a teaching out there that's telling Christians that God's not in control. And it's me knowing that God's in control that keeps me from going out of control. We can exhibit self-control as we realize God is in control. Last week in chapter 17, verse 25, I had to deal with a teaching where people are saying how God needs stuff. And chapter 17, he needs, he doesn't need anything from anyone. The total opposite, he gives. He gives life and breath and all things. God doesn't need, but he gives us the privilege. And what's the privilege? The privilege is for us to co-labor with him. 2 Corinthians 5, that we're God's fellow workers. We're ambassadors. And yes, there is this place in which God has given us authority 
But that does not mean God's no longer in control. And if anybody could have wondered if God was in control, it would have been these folks in, in chapter 18. And God gives this word, I am with you. I still have several people, or I have several people in this city. And so what the apostle does and the others do is then they co-labor with God. They're God's fellow workers, ambassadors of God in this privileged place to keep on keeping on doing the things that God has called us to do. Okay, so I have to keep moving. I wanted you to to know that. So uh, th- that has has been a very helpful and very powerful word for me that God is with me. And last August, I was at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City where Sam Storms is and talked to him and he put his hand on his, my shoulder and said almost the same exact thing to me. And so a lot of times God will do that. God will give you a word because God does still speak. We are in the new covenant. And we weigh everything with scripture. We're told in this passage, a lot of people are introduced to us in this chapter. Aquila, who's a Jewish man, and his wife Priscilla are introduced here and they have to to leave Rome so and they meet up and Paul meets them here in Corinth and Paul is a tent maker and so are they and so they kind of meet up and they do this but then we're told in this passage how uh, once Paul uh, excuse me Silas and Timothy and Silas's longer name is Silvanus Silvanus and Timothy come and meet up with him now he gives himself almost exclusively to the Word of God. And there is a something very powerful in that before we go on, which is he, he is a tent maker, but you can tell that his heart is really to minister. And I really think that this is a telltale sign between a natural person and a spiritual person. And what I mean by that is a unsaved person and a born-again person. There is a person who will sit in church, but their heart and their mind is on the office. And they really just want to get back to the office and they want to get back to work. And yet then there's another person who's at work, but their heart really is to be in ministry. One might sit in a worship service because they want things to go well at work. And the other one's at work wishing that they could be freed up more and and donate more to ministry. And what you see the Apostle Paul doing here is is it gets a hold of him. Uh, The King James uh, says, even puts the word in some other translations about uh, his spirit. Something mentions uh, his spirit when it says... When, when the New American Standard says Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. That, that's, there's a compound word there that's used, and it was literally used by farmers as they would press cattle out of the way to corner a cat, uh, one particular, uh, cow or, or bull just to medicate that one c- cow. It's this pressure. And so some Bibles say here, Paul's just occupied with the word. See, that's, it's, it's where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Jesus used this word in Luke chapter 12 when he says, my, I have a baptism to go undergo and my heart's in distress. 
until this actually happened. So I didn't want to glaze over that without showing how there, there's something much more spiritual and powerful that's going on in that verse when it says that, that Paul is occupied with the word. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 when he says the love of Christ controls it constrains us and this is this is Paul's heart is to is to the word not just for himself the word he's 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 constrained for the word for other people and sometimes i feel like in our day people get into the word but they get into it for themselves only and we should be getting into the word uh, for others sake as well for the kingdom of christ so this was claudius and i'd love to tell you there's a lot of interesting things about him uh before him was his nephew caligula and then claudius comes in and the scholars are able to date what takes place here in this chapter because of some of the things that are mentioned now, after he dies, there's going to be another Caesar who rises up named Nero and who is a horrible person. Claudius's maternal grandfather was Mark Antony. And he tells all of the Jews or the Christians that they have to leave Rome because no doubt a similar sort of ruckus happens here. And so Aquila and Priscilla, who are from Pontus, wind up over here in Corinth and I even think the reason is because he's from Pontus, and see, Pontus is up here. And so it, with this map, you might be able to see the word Pontus right there, and that's on the south shore of the Black Sea. And you may very well know that on the north shore of the Black Sea that there's a country called Ukraine. And so this is give an idea here. Let's pause. Can we let's pause for a second and just pray about that? Father, we lift up to you again the country of Ukraine and all the people there and all the families and folks who have been displaced who are in other countries. And we ask for an end to this conflict. And pray and know all that this could turn into for the whole world. And so we just pray right now and we ask uh, for this war to come to an end and for Russia to pull out and, and for you to help those there in Ukraine who are fighting. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, so here they are in Corinth. And Corinth is right here between this, this body of water and this body of water. There's this city of Corinth, Sancria is a port that uh, Paul would get on to head over to Ephesus, we're told in this chapter. They, in the early 1900s, made a canal through this, that region I just showed you after dynamite was created. And so there is the canal uh, all through Corinth. And you can see it from the sky. So here, here, this is the area. This is the area. And there is a, the proconsul is there. And the proconsul was the chief officer of any Roman province. And so this province is Achaia. It's that southern province of Greece. And so Gallio is the chief leader. And so if, if there was a problem, you would go before him. And then some Bibles call it the tribunal. New American Standard call it the judgment seat. 
And so they have to go before <clears throat> Gallio. And this would have been that exact spot where the Apostle Paul stood as they put him before Gallio. The Greek word for this judgment seat is Bema. So if you've ever heard the teaching on the Bema, Paul will use it later. It's a judgment of works of what did you do with the grace that Jesus gave you? We will all stand before the judgment seat, the Bema of Christ. It's not the great white throne of judgment. And that's why a lot of times when you teach on a passage, you have to point out it's the Bema. It's, it's, where, it's a judgment for works. What did you do? What sort of a steward were you with what God gave you? And so this is the exact spot where he stood. And they even found an inscription that actually has uh, Gallio's name on it. <clears throat> and so it's it's actually right there. See the gamma and the alpha, the lambda, the lambda, uh, the iota, and the uh, omega. And his, his name actually is Galeonos, and the, the sigma is missing there. So there it is. These are historical people. Uh, anybody want to argue, by the way? <laughs> I, just, I don't know. Anyway, I think it's really awesome that we can point <clears throat> to historical things because it tells us that the actual time period when Paul is there in Corinth. And so, verse 11, when he settles there for a year and six months, uh, this is between the year 49 and 51, that he's there a year and a half, and he writes First and Second Thessalonians right there in that time period in verse 11. We know that because Gallio was the proconsul. He was that chief officer in that province uh, between the years 51 and 52. And so this has really helped a lot of scholars to pinpoint some of the things that happen in this chapter. <clears throat> Paul is a tent maker, and he brings this up several times in his letters, uh, not only to the Corinthians, but to other people. But he says, you may remember when uh, in 2 Corinthians, because they are accusing him of just being not really a super apostle because he didn't even charge. And usually for apostles or great speakers, you had to give them some sort of a fee. And Paul says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? How did he do it? Because he was a tent maker. There in Corinth, it just wasn't his heart, but it was something that he was willing to do so that he did not have to charge them. And then many of the other people who are introduced in this chapter, he mentions in other places. You recall, Apollos was, Apollos was one of the ones that they were lining up for. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos. And others were saying, I'm of Peter or Cephas. And, and Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And he says, other than that, I can't quite remember. Which if you had to be baptized to be saved, you sure would think he'd be baptizing everybody. But you're saved by your belief in Christ, and then you're baptized to show that. So in verse 8, when they heard they were believing and being baptized... Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. There's Crispus mentioned right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. 
And then also Sosthenes, who's one of the leaders of the synagogue, is mentioned. He's part of the ones who wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So you see Sosthenes, hard to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, in that passage. So all of that is to say a lot of things were going on in the apostle's life, but the main thing that he was about was the kingdom of Christ. He really wanted people to believe and to be saved. And then he wanted the name of Jesus to be high and lifted up. Verse 5, after it says he was devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying. Now, that word, testifying, is powerful. We've been told he was preaching, we've been told he's teaching, and it's extremely important to teach. Verse 11 shows that as he was teaching the Word of God. But here he is testifying. He's being a witness. He's not just telling what other people have said. He's not just reorganizing other people's notes. He's testifying about Jesus that Jesus really and truly is the Christ. This is like a, a first-hand knowing. This is what we're called to do. We are called to know Jesus, to testify. You know, to testify. I could have told you Elaine's story today. Didn't it bring more power with it that she got up and she testified herself. There's still power in me telling what she did, but when you can testify yourself to the grace of God, to what salvation is, to what it feels like to have your sins forgiven, and to know who Jesus is, and the desire to proclaim and to, to where it constrains you that this is what you this is what you now are about. See, God is with you. I'm with you. What does that mean I'm with you? It doesn't mean I'm with you so that you can get back to the office and get on with life as it was. I am with you means I will supply to you all the help that you need to carry out what I have called you to do. I am with you. Stay straight. Keep straight. Keep your eyes on me. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. Because I am with you. Testify. And tell people about me. And this is why this really is. I, my heart's desire is that, that everybody at First Community Church this year would lead at least somebody to faith in Christ. Now, that's really, it's going to be God doing it. He gets the glory, but he's called us to be a part of that. I don't think, uh, well, i got to keep going. Verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. Now that sounds really harsh. And this is why it's so awesome to study and teach the Bible. Because you know what he's doing here? He's quoting to them from Ezekiel chapter 33. Do you remember the watchman? Ezekiel, I'm going to tell you, but just as a watchman, if he isn't going to tell the people, the blood's going to be on your head for not telling them. But if you tell them and they don't listen, then the blood's on their head. This is Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1 through 7. 
Ezekiel, I'm telling you what to tell them. And if you don't tell them, the blood's on your head. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, all right, guys, the blood's on your head. And some have said here, so now Paul turns exclusively and only to the Gentiles. Well, that's just not the case because verse 7, he goes to the house of a man named Titius Justus, whose house was where? Next to the synagogue. You see? So he doesn't really go too far. Yes, it's open to the Gentiles, but he keeps working on them. And when he gets into Ephesus in verse 19 and following, you see that he, verse 19, he goes right into the synagogue. Do you think he's being naive? Do you think he thinks, oh, well, all these Jewish folks are going to accept me? I'm in Ephesus now. Or do you think he knows what's coming? How does he do it? God's with him. He knows God is with him. And it's not because somebody just gave him a book to read. It's because he really has heard from the living Lord. And he believes it. Okay, so to wrap this up. You know there's a prophecy given to Isaiah in chapter 7 when King Uzziah died and there's a lot of uncertainty and God says a prophetess will be with child and she's going to give birth and you're going to name that child Emmanuel. God is with you. It's, a, it's interesting the way that God will do visions. He does not have one set way that he does this. In chapter 18, Paul just has a vision in the night and he hears from the Lord. Joseph has a dream and an angel speaks to him and says, uh, stick with this woman, Mary, because that baby is of the Lord and, and you'll call him Emmanuel. God is with us. I love the verses that say things like, God uh, doesn't change. And the other verses that say, uh, God will never leave you nor forsake you. How do you get God with you? How, how do you find that God is with you? Um, well, here's what I think. I think you can look to the wedding in Cana. You remember that? Why did Jesus go? Why did Emmanuel go to the wedding in Cana? Because they invited him. And then while he was there, number two, Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And I think right in there you have the key. I think right there, here's what you do. You invite Jesus to come into your life. And he's God with you. And whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Even if it means you're rejected, even if it means difficult times. And in fact, if you really follow what Jesus tells you to do, it may very well mean you'll be hated by men. But you have God with you. Now, can there be any better truth than that? And so I would say to anyone here, if you wonder if God is with you, invite him. Ask him. Ask Jesus to really come into your life and then be ready to do what he tells you to do. 
as best you can. You're going to still need his help. You're still going to need his grace. All those kinds of things. But he's never, ever, ever going to leave you. Ever. He will not leave you and he will not leave your church. That's what Dr. Storm said to me. And then I get a phone call. I got a word for you. What's the word? God is with you. Is there any better news than that? Lord Jesus, uh, we pray now. We invite your presence here. And we pray that you would help us in this time of prayer. That this building would be a house of prayer for all people. So even though some may not be here today, can't be here today. Lord, would you, through our prayers today, in obedience to your word today, would you help people in the difficult place that they're in? And you know, Lord, we have many in the hospital. We have many who are really struggling with a lot of things. We have churches that are struggling, and our church needs you. So would you come, and would you help us then to follow what you tell us to do? In Jesus' name, amen.